You can go back to Children's Church. Um, church, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we will be today. Um, I'll be reading a pretty big chunk of scripture, but we'll only be looking at um, one particular verse today. All right. Let everybody get settled. Take a drink of water. Narrate everything I do. All right. 1 John chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me share with you a little bit about myself. How many people here love finding stuff? How many people here hate losing stuff? You can't have one without the other, right? In order to find things, you have to lose them first. And we hate losing them, but we love finding them. I have since an early age, and I inherited this trait from my mother, um, been able to find the, the things in the weirdest of spots. Like I have this mind that just scurries. With the exception of my capo this morning that goes on the neck of my guitar, I lost that and it was, in, it was right under my nose. But generally, you know, the kids come, Dad, I can't find this. Okay. Sarah, oh, I can't find this paper or this thing. Okay, I'm on it. And, and since I was a kid, there's something about that adventure and searching and, and, and kind of excavating and, and looking through and retracing steps. You know, okay, I was here and then I was here and then I did this. Oh, there it is. And, and, and it's just, for me, it's almost like an adventure, whether I'm find, finding a document or a piece of jewelry or, or just something that I've been looking for forever. Nothing's more infuriating though that when you go to a place where something should be and it's not there, right? Share that with you. <coughs> Excuse me. I share that with you because at one time in my life, I, I loved searching, researching, going after the Antichrist or the Antichrist. You know, he's that, he's that character of the Bible that we're warned against uh, that will come in the last days. And if you've ever seen the Left Behind movies, you know, you have the Nikolai Carpathia who, who will come and, and set up a new world order and, and will come and, and, and seem to be coming under the guise of peace, but honestly will be filled with Satan. And, um, you know, I'm not here to say those things are good or bad. What I'm saying is uh, that was me. And I loved going to these websites and researching. And is it this guy? Is it this person? It, it, what, is, what does 666 mean and that sort of thing? And, and then at one point, I got to this extensive list. And I really wish this guy, whoever wrote it, would have put the last thing at the beginning. But the very last thing it said was, maybe your time is better spent searching for Jesus than for the Antichrist. And I was like, oh, conviction. Like, man, I... You're right. What am I, why am I busy looking for this potential guy who I don't even know who he is when I have Christ of the Bible whom I can search for? Why would I waste so much time devoted to someone who's really only end is my destruction when I could be searching for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I could be learning his will for my life. I could be going after him rather than any other thing. Now, studying last days, and that includes the Antichrist, are worthwhile endeavors when applied contextually or biblically in your life. Meaning the Bible mentions them. It's something that we should know about, but to obsess about them, to search after them, to make it our life's work is really a fruitless end. Sometimes Satan doesn't want you to get your attention on him. It just needs to be off of Christ. 
And so if you would picture in my, in my mind, this is how I picture this, walking this path behind Jesus and something over here catching my eye, so I deviate my course and all Satan does is make me start running in circles. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily make me go completely far away, he just gets me off course so that I start, I start chasing my own tail, so to speak. And in that, I may not be, I may not be focused on uh, uh, Satan or sin or death, but I'm certainly not following after Jesus anymore. And so today's warning, today's uh, encouragement, today's word comes out of 1 John 2.18. It says this, children, if you've got the King James, it says little children, and that's important. We'll get to that word in just a moment. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not, or that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Let us pray. Jesus, your word is good. As the preacher this morning, I'm praying that I would not add to nor take away from what your word says. Father, the message that you have uh, preordained for us this morning, I'm praying that it would go out, reach the hearts of your people, that my, my, my words, though they, they can hit the ears, Lord, they cannot penetrate the heart. And so I'm praying, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would go so much deeper than I ever could. I pray that your word would be exactly what it claims to be, eternal, life-giving, and, and, and never passing away. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. John starts off this particular chunk of scripture by referring to us and referring to the church as little children. He does this uh, a few times throughout this letter. And it, each time we come across it, I feel the importance to address it because it means so many different things. Um, depending on where you are in life, you might hear it in different ways as well. I'm here to tell you it's not about one particular way being true. It's, it's a few different definitions of why John is using this that is, uh, should be important to us and help us to clarify what John is addressing. When John is saying to us, when he's saying to the church, little children, he's saying a couple different things. Number one, he's using a term of endearment. He's not just saying, hey pupils, I'm your professor, here's the syllabus, learn the material, do your research, come to a conclusion. He's not merely saying, hey, employees or people who are underneath me, um, I exercise all authority, do what I say without questioning, without doubt, without uh, challenging my authority. He's using this term of endearment. He's saying little children. He's showing that he's invested in their life. Parents, you know that you are invested in the lives of your children from the time they are born and even before they're born till the day that you die, you will be involved in their lives in some way, shape or form. And that may change over the years. When they're five and when they're 50, that might look completely different, but you will be invested in their life because they're not just people, they're people from you. 
They were a blessing to you. The Bible says that children are a heritage from the Lord. Blesses the man who has a quiver full of them. And so we understand that kids are not just new people, but they are a gift to the parents that receive them. And so we, we understand that those kids that, that come from us or those kids that we adopt into our family, they're both equally loved and equally as important. As important. We're a part of them and they're a part of us. John is using this term to the church, little children, because he is invested in them and they are a part of him as well. Jesus is invested in you. He gave his life that you might live. And so the promise to never leave you nor forsake you is deeply rooted in the fact that he gave his life for you. And for him to turn his back on you would be the equivalent of turning his back on himself, to turning his back on his word, from turning his back on the plan he has had since the beginning of time, uh, preordained before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says. And so when John uses that term, I want you to hear the Lord speaking to you, little children, my children. The Bible, the book of Romans talks about how we've now been granted this privilege of being called the children of God because we've placed our faith in Christ. We were like spiritual orphans born in sin, but now we've been saved. We've been adopted by this great father. And so we've been given a new name. We've been given a new identity. We are brand new in Christ. So John uses that term that uh, little children, it's a loving, enduring, endearing term, but it's also indicative of the fact that we need to grow. See, some people think that these thoughts are mutually exclusive, that either Jesus must always be encouraging and improving, approving rather of what we do, or he's only correcting and rebuking us and, and encouraging us to grow past the place that we're at. These thoughts are not mutually exclusive. They are not opposite. They are two sides to the same coin. Jesus is all loving, all caring, all encompassing of our lives, invested in us as he has given himself to us, but we as people need to grow as well. We start off as spiritual infants and, and like infants, we grow into spiritual toddlers and then uh, spiritual you know, eight and nine-year-olds and then uh, preteens and adolescents and, and, and teenagers. And then we grow into adults and we, we hopefully as the years go by, we mature in Christ. Now I've met people in their 60s and 70s who are still babies in Christ. And I've met people in their early 20s that were way wise beyond their years. Spiritual growth is not determined by or counted by how many years we go around the sun. It's determined by how much the Lord reveals to us in a certain time. And there are times where the Lord reveals to some and, and, and then to others, and it might be more here and less here, but because the, because the Lord we serve is a loving father, he knows what we need and when we need it. I think about Jeremiah chapter 12 when Jeremiah is growing tired of being a prophet to the people of Israel. The people of Israel are stubborn and hard-hearted in that setting and he's, he's telling them what God has told him to say and they're turning a deaf ear to him and they're mocking him and, and, and false prophets are standing up and saying, it's not gonna be like that. It's gonna be peace. Everything's fine. Continue the way that you are. And so Jeremiah gets mad and in a moment of, uh, of anger, just tells God, you know what, just take them all like sheep to the slaughter. Those are pretty harsh words. I mean, we don't use that kind of language, but it's kind of like, be done with them. 
Just let's just start over. This is this is not this is not going according to plan, Lord. I got a plan. You do this. And the Lord has to rebuke Jeremiah, a man who has been obedient to the Lord. He's got to rebuke Jeremiah and say, look, if you've, if you've grown weary running with men, how will you run with horses? This is God's way of saying, look, if you can't handle what I've given you here, I have no business of moving you or maturing you into this next phase of your life because comparatively, the next phase is like trying to run with horses. Men might run really fast, but no man will ever run as fast as a horse. We understand that, right? Uh, a man might run so many miles per hour and a horse will just double, triple, quadruple that. And so God tells Jeremiah, look, right now is like running with men. You've got to be ready for this next part of your life. I can't progress you until you, you are conquering this area here. And so it's a rebuke, but it's a rebuke in love. I, he's showing Jeremiah, look, I have this plan for you. These are the words he gave to Jeremiah, right? Plan, I have a, a plan for your life. I believe it's Jeremiah 29. But you're going to move according to my speed and how I progress you. So if you're wondering why won't God do this and why won't God do that, because he's a good father and knows what you're ready for and what you're not ready for. We are both loved and we are so loved that we can, we can hardly fathom uh, what love God has for us. But we also need to grow. Like children, we need to grow. We need to learn. We need to understand. We need to study the word. We need to be in communion with other Christians. We need to be a part of the church. We must um, serve and love others within and without the church. I think about Zacchaeus. You guys know the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, the wee little man. You know, he met Christ and went from non-Christian to Christian And it didn't just lead to him just resting and knowing that Christ was the Christ. It led to him, uh, excuse me, it led him to repentance. And repentance looked like this because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a man who would take uh, more than was required so he could fatten his pockets. He decided, Lord, I'm going to, anybody I've wronged, I'm gonna pay them back and I'm gonna pay them back fourfold. He was so moved by his salvation, by by the presence of Jesus, that it caused him to repent. And that's the order we preach here. We preach that the grace of God precedes the repentance of man. We do not repent to receive grace. We receive grace so that we might repent. And it makes a world of difference. So John uses this term little children as a term of endearment, as a reminder that we're, as far as we might be, we might still just be children. But it is also this, uh, this authority that he has. There is the apostles of the New Testament and a mark of spiritual maturity is what we find in Acts chapter two, verse 42, where it says that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Some people believe that, well, the first evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit is the speaking in tongues. I don't doubt that. I, I, my, my teaching based on the word of God is that God fills you up and how that spills out kind of is however he preordains. But in this instance, the first church people, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. When we give ourselves to the word of God, we are doing the same thing. When men like John and Peter and James and Paul when they were moved by the Spirit to write down these things, to write these letters to these churches, to, to, to encourage and to rebuke the different groups of people who were seeking the Lord, 
This was the apostles' teaching. And when I use that term apostle, I'm speaking primarily of and basically only of the apostles of the New Testament. The Bible says that God has given us apostles along with prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists as gifts to the church. But these apostles are what we call little a apostles. The big A apostles are the the disciples who became the apostles. But little a apostles are men who go out and start churches in new places. They take the word of God to other places. They establish new places of worship, new centers that people are drawn to to worship together collectively. And if you go online, you can find a lot of people who call themselves that, but don't do apostly things. If someone calls himself an apostle, they should do apostly things. Ducks, quack, cows, moo, Apostles should do what apostles should do. And so if they're not doing those things, well, then we just say good day, sir. Um, But it's a reminder of authority. Jesus said that um, those that are in authority, though, are not to lord it over other people. See, the org chart for Christ works backwards or it works upside down. Org chart humanistically is as you gain more authority, more people come under you to serve you. And so that's why the CEO of a company has assistants and and people who do things for him and and people who are ready at his beck and call. But the janitor pretty much has nobody to call on. He's the last man on the totem pole, depending on the org chart of that place. But the dynamic of Christ's org chart is different. The janitor might be at the very top and the leaders, as you grow in leadership, you're just serving more and more. You're not using your authority to lord it over people. You're using it to serve more people. Here's how Jesus put it in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus pulled aside his disciples and said, look how, look how these people use their authority. They use it to get on top of other people, to, to stand on the people as they serve them. But it's not gonna be like that with you. As you gain authority, you will actually serve more and more people. You will become like a willing slave to the church, to your neighbor, to your family. And you will do so because I have done so, Jesus said. I did not come to, to be served, but rather to serve humanity. Let your mind for a moment try to wrap around that one, that Jesus came not to be served by you, but to serve you. For me, it makes me all nervous. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't. Jesus shouldn't be serving me. I feel like, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Peter, when Jesus wants to wash his feet, and he's like, no, Lord, I should be washing your feet. Like, that's what I feel like. Like, no, you shouldn't serve me. I should serve you. Jesus said, no, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So when you see spiritual abuse in the form of lording authority, you can, you can understand, okay, they might be acting within the church, but that doesn't mean they're the church. They are abusing their authority. And the Lord's really good at making sure that those folks get stopped. It might go for years, maybe even decades, but eventually everything done in the dark will be brought to the light and everything done in secret will be exposed. So we don't have to worry ourselves or make it our lifelong endeavor to expose necessarily because the light shining will always expose. The light of Christ will always expose what is dark. 
And lastly, when he says this, John is, is reminding the church they need to mature. And I hit on that already. But here's the specific reason why he's saying it now. He's saying they have to mature about the last days or the last hours. I, I genuinely do love the study of end times. <clears throat> I love the book of Revelation. It's an amazing book. You know, if you read it, if you try to read it like by itself, outside of the Bible, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when you read it in light of the entire canon of the word, it makes a lot more sense. When you start seeing the plagues of the book of Revelation looking a lot like the plagues of the book of, uh, the book of Exodus, you start realizing, okay, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That, that these things that he's doing, they're these, it's the end of the world sort of collapsing in on itself, that sin has finally reached its full end, and, and God is going to, again, re- re-enter into human history and make all things brand new. But the study of end times can often occupy us to the point where we lose sight of the gospel. This is why channels like the History Channel and the Discovery Channel focus a lot on the book of Revelation, book of Daniel, different books of prophecy in the Bible because they tickle our ears without really giving us anything nourishing to feast on. They just kind of babble on about theories and what this could mean and maybe it's aliens and all this other business rather than what does the word of God say about itself? So the study of the end times, eschatology as it's formally formally known, um, is a good thing taken in um, uh, controlling the portion of it, how much it occupies our life. It's a part of what we study and what we learn and what we should know, but it should not preoccupy us to the point where we, we start you know, gathering ammo and living in a bunker under our house for the end days so that we're ready for the Antichrist attacks. These people were much the same. And one of the things that gets thrown in there that, that complicates things is that they were being taught by the Gnostics that, that knowing Jesus was only gained by secret knowledge. Only a select few would know Jesus truly. They were teaching that, that through climbing this ladder of enlightenment that you would maybe, just maybe, find Jesus as he is to be known. And so what that turned out to be was a select few who then began abusing their spiritual authority and saying, well, if you could just be like us, if you could just knew what we knew, then you'd understand. So just follow us blindly because we know and you don't. And they dressed it up more than that because nobody would follow that, right? If I came into you and said, hey, I'm enlightened, you're not, follow me and don't question. You would never do that. You'd be like, who are you? But if you come and you dress it up and make it sound Christian-y, people's ears get intrigued, ears start getting tickled, and the next thing you know, you're abandoning sound doctrine for something that just kind of tickles your fancy or tickles your ears. What are the last days? The last days are now. The last days begun when Jesus ascended to heaven. John is writing this in, oh, I don't know, 70, 80 AD, something like that, give or take a decade. He is writing to the church early on within a generation of Christ's ascension to heaven that the last days are already here. And how do we know that? Not because the Antichrist has come, but because the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. So what does that mean? What, is, what does Antichrist mean? It means two things rolled up into one. Number one, it means against Christ. And that's pretty easy. 
that's generally pretty, e- pretty easy to identify. And as Christians, we're usually pretty good at staying away from that. It's like, whoa, that's, you're against Christ. We shouldn't, you know, we can't, we can't mesh together because you're against Christ and I'm pro-Christ. Like I'm all about Jesus and you're not just like, oh, that's not my path. You're like, no, Jesus is the devil or Jesus is fake or Jesus uh, was a good teacher or, or taught good morals, but he's not the son of God. And so we say spiritually, we can't mesh together. We, we, can, we can be friendly. I love you. I want to serve you, but we're not on the same team. But the one that we miss the most that this also means is instead of Christ. We talked about this last week and it seems to be coming up a lot lately, this idea of compromise, this idea of accepting a substitute rather than the authentic. It's as though we've gone and we've looked at fool's gold and said, no, oh, this is, this is gold, this is good. It's, it's worthwhile, it's valued, it's, it's beneficial to me. And so we look at the ways of the world and and we adopt what they do rather than adopt what Jesus has prescribed for us. And so that comes in the form of of all sorts of different types of sin. And we are called not not to hide from the world, but to exist in the world. Like walking through a minefield, like walking into gunfire that we can't see where it's coming from. We should be walking out under the protection of God, living like Daniel in the lion's den. We understand the world wants to devour us, but that shouldn't cause us to cower. That should cause us to go boldly in Jesus. And so we compromise when we know what the word of God says, but we act contrary to it. And we know that Jesus is our savior, but we live in a way that substitutes him. We develop for ourselves a functional savior. I see within, a chur- within the church, this usually happens when there's somebody who you consider more spiritual than you, so you go to them for prayer. And there's nothing wrong with asking somebody for prayer, but in your mind, you gotta ask that person to pray for you because then things will happen. I'm not here to say that there aren't people who are not gifted with those things, but when that person becomes our functional savior, we've now replaced Jesus with that thing or that person. Maybe it's, it's uh, you know, I find guys, especially very devout guys who are like, wake up at five o'clock in the morning, read the word, you know, have a cup of coffee. And I've been doing that every day for 40 years. And when that doesn't happen, they're all thrown out of whack. Like, oh, yeah. And they get this mentality that somehow they disappointed God and haven't done things correctly. And so I wouldn't say that waking up at five and reading the word is a bad thing any day. I would never say that unless your performance is what you are uh, using as your savior rather than the word itself to minister to you. We do this when we compromise on what the word of God has said. Jesus said that, you know, uh, we've been told that murder is wrong, it's a sin, but if we hate somebody in our heart, it's as though we've murdered our brother. And so when we accept, well, we can hate some people, we've compromised with the world. We've developed their mindset rather than the mindset of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, you know, adultery starts in the heart. The physical completion of adultery is just the, the, the end of what already started in a person's heart. And so adultery begins with the eyes and it begins with the text messages and it begins with the emails and the coffee and, the, and, and just replacing your spouse with somebody else. It doesn't start like, hey, I'm gonna have an affair today. It starts with, you know, that person at work just really hears me and understands me not like my wife or my husband 
or I'm just gonna look at a little bit of pornography, or I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna spend a little bit of time here at this site for whatever reason. It's okay, it's not a big deal, I can stop anytime. And there we develop the mindset of the world, we've compromised, and that is what is the spirit of antichrist. It has come against God and given you a substitute for Jesus, something instead of. Now, the good news is that Jesus is bigger than this threat. The good news is we have Jesus with us always through his Holy Spirit. There are not times where the Spirit leaves you and then comes back. The Spirit's there always. He's always mindful of you. He's always directing you. He's always comforting you and counseling you. He's always leading you into all truth. These are the promises that Jesus gave us about the Holy Spirit. But one of the reasons why he's always with us not the primary reason, but one of the reasons is because this threat of compromise will never leave. You will never reach a spiritual age or a physical age where sin and temptation just won't be a thing anymore. You will grow older, things will change, your temptations will be different, but they will still be there. The threat to compromise, to, to substitute Jesus with something else will always be there. And so it's our duty not not to simply identify, but to begin allowing the Lord through his grace to pull these out of our hearts. Lord, examine my heart. David put it like this, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. David, a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. You and I have never been called that. I've never been called a man after God's own heart. The word of God called David that. And David turned back to God and said, God created me a clean heart because he understood no matter how much his heart yearned for the Lord, there was a part of him that would always be there nagging, that would always be there biting, going after, like a dog on a chain that's rabid, just trying to get out, just trying to devour us. So many times the greater threat is not Satan, but our own flesh that seeks to sabotage us. Oh sure, Satan will tempt us. Satan will, will, will dangle the proverbial carrot before our face to try to get us to jump. But man, we make that choice on our own. So you gotta ask yourself this morning, who is your functional savior? What is your functional savior? Maybe it's not a person, maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a television program. Maybe it's a, a, a blog or a, or, a, or a podcast you listen to. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a drug. Maybe it's, a, 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 maybe it's alcohol. Well, I just need a glass of wine for this. Okay, then just stop drinking it. Just, just go a month, go one month. If it's not a vice, if it's not something you're addicted to, if it's not a functional savior in your life, then it should be no problem. Maybe it's food. Maybe, maybe it's, it, it's just emotion, you're emotionally drained, so you just go to food for some comfort. And food's a good thing, right? I mean, food's not evil in and of itself. I mean, I've had some meals that were so good they might be evil, but I've, I mean, in and of itself, it's not evil. The food didn't say, you know, eat three portions of me. That was my flesh that came after me and I was like, okay, let's just go. This will be okay, flesh. Food in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's how we respond to it. And so I I would just, I would just encourage you today and challenge you, look at your heart. Yeah, the things that we lift up in our heart higher than Jesus are an idol. Exactly. So when the Bible talks about idolatry, we often think about statues that we see 
carved images out of gold and wood and stone and silver and all that. And we think, well, we don't have any of those things. Or some people go crazy and they get rid of their figurines and anything that's shaped and like, oh, we can't have those things. For us, these are not our idols. Our idols are the things that we lift higher than Jesus in our lives. We might recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We might recognize him as the Son of God. But when times get tight, when the screws get tightened, where do we run? Where do you run when things get hard? That is where your Savior is. And so if it's a bottle, if it's, if it's, if it's drugs, if it's sex, if it's, if it's food, if it's video games, all these things, with the exception of drugs, not bad in and of themselves, but bad when they're put in the place of God, then you have a problem. And so what is our answer? What do we do? It's not simply enough to recognize we have a problem. We have to do something about it. Repentance. Repentance is an old word, but it's a biblical word. Repentance may not be a word you use daily, but it should be something we practice daily. Repentance is not a one-time thing where, oh, I repented in the fifth grade or I repented when I first started coming to church. Repentance is a daily practice. In the same way that maybe taking your vitamins is a daily practice. Making sure you drink enough water is a daily practice. Repentance is a daily practice. Why? Because though we have been saved, we have yet to be saved. It is both. We are saved. Jesus has died on the cross and we've exercised faith in him. But the time of standing before God in the righteousness of Christ has yet to happen. And so it's both now and not yet. And because it's not yet, we must daily repent because we daily sin, right? We, we daily come against things or find things in our life. It's like, oh, I cannot believe I'm still doing this thing. I'm, I know better and I fell for it anyways. I talked myself into it. I, I, I gave in to my flesh. I gave in to Satan and, and I have no one to blame but me. So what does repentance look like? Again, I use Zacchaeus. He was walking in one way of life. His daily life was walking away from God by cheating people, by abusing his authority, by making himself wealthy on the money of other people. And when he met Jesus, he turned around 180 degrees and started walking towards Jesus. All of these things he forsa- were forsaken by him. It was no longer, I can no longer cheat people. I don't even know if he went back to tax collecting. Because tax collecting in and of itself was not bad. It was a job. It was the skimming off the top that was and padding. Oh, you owe 15 shekels? You actually owe 30 shekels. I get to put 15 in my pocket and Rome gets the other 15 that that I owe them or that they owe them. So he turned away from that. And not only did he turn away from that, he decided, you know what? I'm going to give back what I stole. Who Who have we sinned against? Honestly, all sin comes at the expense of somebody. We might think sexual sin, the Bible talks about how sexual sin is not a sin just against, uh, not just against, uh, that's not against anybody. It's a sin against ourselves. That we have, we have when we've uh, done so, it's like entering into adultery. It's like introducing and betraying the one we're devoted to. But the good news is, and it's at the end here of this verse, and, and we're gonna study more of this next week and this promise, verse 25 says, is that he made us, that he made us, he made to us the promise, eternal life. Today, grace has been extended to you. 
not by me, not by any church system, not by any religious organization. Grace has been extended to you through Christ by his cross. Today you can repent because of what Jesus has done for you. We might look at the world and say, how could they do that? Well, they have not yet received <clears throat> the grace that God has given them so that they might repent. They might celebrate their, their sin, they might enjoy it and revel in it, but they're not the church, we're the church. And we have been filled with the Holy Spirit by the grace of God so that we, we might repent. And maybe you've heard that word repent at the, at the end of a finger being wagged in your face, repent. And that's not a completely unbiblical thing. John the Baptist stood out in the wilderness like a crazy person telling the Pharisees, repent, you brood of vipers. The kingdom of God is near. Truth be told, sometimes we've got to hear it like that because we've grown, we've grown too relaxed in our, um, in our walk. Compromises kind of come in and made us lazy. So we need somebody to come in and shake us up a little bit. But that word is also whispered to us, repent. Your response today is to repent. To look at your heart, to ask the Lord to, to help you to see your heart through his eyes. Where am I, where am I running to? What am I hungry for? We sing that song, Hungry. When I sing that song, I get convicted. Because I know there's times where I'm hungry for a lot of things and it's not the Lord. Or sometimes I'm hungry for the Lord and I use something else to feed that hunger. It satisfies for a moment, but it doesn't sustain like Christ does. And so what I've learned through the practice of repentance is that repentance is not a bad word. It's actually a very good word. When the Lord brings me to a place where I recognize I need to repent, I mean, at first it's like, oh gosh, kicking myself, you know. Idiot, why did I do that again? But then it causes me, causes me to rejoice. Lord, I, thank you again for letting me repent. Thank you for giving me the ability to apologize to somebody, to go to them and say, you know, I'm sorry for what I said or did. I was a jerk. You know, to the kids, maybe, maybe I'm the only parent that does this, but you get mad and then you yell at the kids. You guys probably don't do that. You're probably superhuman, not like me. Something happens and then they come in, hey dad, and you're like, Rrr. And they're like, what did I do? The ability to go back and say, you know what, son, daughter, I, I'm sorry I did that. It was not your fault. Daddy made a stupid choice. I was angry here and you came around the corner and I took it out on you. And that was not fair of me. And that was wrong of me. Do you forgive me? I don't demand forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness. Well, a father shouldn't ask for forgiveness from his children, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. If you treat your children like a jerk, you should repent of your jerkiness. And that's what I try to do. My kids are so cool. They're always like, sure, dad. We forgive you. And they run off, Legos and stuffed animals just flying in the background. I'm like, man, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for, for opening my eyes to that. It's not letting that build up for 40 years so that one day my children resent me don't want to come to my house anymore and, and cringe when they have to spend time with me. Like, I don't want to be that way. I don't want my kids to see me that way. And so thank you for allowing me to repent now. I hate that I had to do it in one sense, but I'm so glad that you brought me to it. And maybe, maybe you've done that to your wife or your husband. Go to them. Repent. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry I did, I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I was, I was oblivious to your feelings. You know who I'm talking to now, I'm talking to the men. I'm sorry that you said that thing and I just didn't pick up on what you were really saying. We've been married 20 years, I should know this already. I'm sorry I didn't respect you. Now I'm talking to the ladies. I'm, I'm sorry that I disrespected you in front of your friends. I mean, when I say disrespect, I don't mean like they got all uppity. I mean like belittled you in front of people or, or doubted you and your ability to lead this family. I'm sorry. Do you forgive me? And then for those on the other end, be sure to forgive. But where have you compromised in your life? Oh man, I, I find that I run to this thing every time. And, and if I don't do that, I feel lost and I feel, I feel like the world's just gonna cave. That thing is your functional savior. And Jesus has exposed it to you today and repentance is the next step. Lord, that thing, that's what it is. And I need to turn away from it. And here's the awesome thing about Jesus. You can say, Lord, I can't turn away from it. I, I don't even know how. I'm so deeply connected to it and rooted in it I don't know how to turn away from it. There's no 12-step program. There's no book I can read that's gonna turn me away from this. So Lord, I need you to do it. And he's really good at taking that thing from you and purging it from you. Oh, it's gonna hurt, and I'm not saying this lightly, it will hurt like hell, like hell being removed from you, but like a surgeon with guided hands, he will remove it thoroughly. And it will take time and it will be painful, but it will be good and you will rejoice at your deliverance. And so today the invitation is an invitation to repent because we are all at one, in one way or another, little children in need of growing. And, and the antichrist or the antichrist rather that we are to worry about is not a guy who will establish a new world order. That might happen, or excuse me, that'll happen one day, but that's not our threat. Our threat right now is the same threat that this church faced and that is the one that comes to substitute Jesus in your life. The one that denies Jesus as your Christ. The one that denies that Jesus is the son of God sent from the father. We have a, a, a what we sing is a blessed assurance that Jesus is ours and that this is our story this is our song that though we were still sinners when we were still sinners Christ died for us that before we ever loved him he loved us so because of love because of grace because of what we have in him we can do what he's called us to do so let's stand and pray today I want to pray with you not just for you I, I would pray today that you would take this moment, and not just this moment, the rest of the day, that you'd read your word, and that you would, by faith, trust the word of God. Everything that I have said to you, I would pray that you would use the Bible as a filter, meaning pour my words through it. Whatever drops through, don't listen to it. Whatever sticks is the word of God, meaning it's Bible-based. It's what Jesus prescribes and ordains for us. My word is not infallible, but the word of God is. So study. God has exposed this thing in my heart. Go to his word. Seek, excuse me, seek counsel from people you trust spiritually. 
people who are walking with Christ, people who might be failing, but they're failing in the direction of Jesus. Talk to them. Express to them what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what you, th- what you think the Lord is, is, is calling you and challenging you about. As your pastor, as, as I can, we can schedule times to talk. We can go get coffee. We can go get a sandwich. I don't care. We can go do something. We can just go sit on a park bench and talk about wherever the Lord is, is, is challenging you about today. But either way, let the Lord see your heart as it truly is. Let's pray together. Jesus, I am so thankful, personally first, but also for our church, that you do not leave us as orphans. You have sent us the Holy Spirit. And one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to expose darkness in us, compromise, substitute or functional saviors where antichrist has come and set up shop where you should be. I thank you that you don't come in the form of condemnation. You come to deliver us. You find more joy in exposing these things than punishing us for them. So by your grace, Lord, allow us to repent where functional saviors are in our lives. Lord, help us like the Israelites in the Old Testament to tear down those idols that have been set up in the high places of our heart. That we, we might truly be set free as we know you. That the truth of Jesus Christ would set us free indeed. That the burden and the weight of life that we've added through compromise would be alleviated and that we'd walk and be relieved. And in all these things, Lord, may we not grow haughty in them. May we recognize that we are little children, all of us, in need of a father who guides and directs us into all truth. But as these little children, we have a great and loving father, one that loves us and even as he disciplines us, does so because he loves us so greatly. We thank you, Lord. May you be glorified in our life. In Jesus' most precious name we pray, amen.